You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 70, I guess. Uh, I'm your host, Troy Goodfellow, and welcome to our first post-E3 show. Um, and with me are my two most regular panelists, uh, freelance writer from Gamers with Jobs and other places, uh, Julian Murdoch. Hello, hello. And I didn't go to E3, and I'm not, not bitter about it at all. And freelance writer uh, and Game Shark colleague and frequent writer for The Escapist, uh, Rob Zachney. Troy, you got to stop introducing us as the most regular panelists. I feel like I'm taking some sort of Metamucil or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's been a month. With the Iron had, Brigade. It's been a month since we've had uh, either Tom or Bruce on the show. Uh, Tom did plan on being here tonight, uh, but he was. Uh, wrapped up in a conference call and has plans for tonight. I was hoping to hook up with him at E3 for a podcast, uh, but we only had 15 minutes uh, with John Schaefer. We only got the 15 minutes, and our schedules were just impossible uh, to coordinate uh, while at the show because he doesn't have a cell phone. I did see him for dinner pretty much every night, which was very cool uh, to hang out with Tom. Um, so that was good, and I want to thank the listeners for putting up with the very brief show we did with Mr. Schaefer. It was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I had breakfast with him that same morning, an off-the-record breakfast, and we talked about baseball. Ooh. Talked about baseball most of the time, uh, which is kind of cool. He's a huge baseball fan, just like I am. And uh, we have a, if not a firm commitment, for Axis is going to try to get him for us uh, for an hour. Um sometime in July. So I'm not making any promises to the listeners, but just saying uh, Firaxis and 2K are going to do what they can uh, to uh, give him to us before the game comes out for a thorough grilling. And I'd like to thank the people at 2K for uh, being so good to me uh, at the show um, because I was there not as Game Shark at the 2K booth talking to John. I was there as Flash of Steel, Three Moves Ahead, and you listeners made all that happen. Um so you want to talk a bit about E3 um, and what was on display there. And we're also going to talk about some stuff that Rob saw at a 1C press event uh, before E3 and hear about his experiences in his very first press event. And it's always nice to, you know, get that virginity press event thing over with. So uh, E3, Julian, you haven't been to E3 in a long time, have you? I haven't been to E3 since the launch of the original Xbox which is like a Whoa. decade or something like that. Wow, that's a long time ago. That's like, I mean, Dead or Alive was like the big launch title. I mean, it was it was a crazy long time ago. It was like a decade. It was like 10 years ago. I was there with the Game Shark crew, who are all wonderful people, and I was on two of their podcasts, Episode 1 and Episode 3. It's always good to get there and run into uh, colleagues and friends and coworkers. Uh, um, and as usual, the strategy showings were pretty damn thin, uh, especially on the floor. Uh, it's impossible to see a strategy game on the floor, really. Um, End of Nations from Tryon had a bit of a display going on over in a corner, um, but for the most part, the real display was way behind closed doors. Uh, same with Civ Five, big game coming out. Nothing on the floor. You would only know it was there if you had an appointment and you went to the demo booth. Uh, Shogun 2, once again, up in the way up in a conference room, stuck somewhere uh, that I had to go and hunt down. And they were running very, very late for, which is a good thing because Bill Abner was seeing it with me and he could not find the room. So it's a good thing they were running late. Uh, so any questions you guys might have about what I saw, you can interview me. And, uh, well, I mean, obviously what I want to know is more about Civ, right? Because I, I mean, you know, I, I did that piece for Game Pro, so I have some sense of what's coming and I, you know, I, I have sort of, I feel like I felt around the edges of it. I saw what they were showing at, 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 uh, PAX. I gather they weren't showing a lot more than that at E3. Is that right? It was a different presentation. Uh, they went into some of the detail on what we know from Civ 4 is civics, um, they're called social policies. And the idea in social policies is as your culture expands and your technology expands, you can choose different social policies along a tree, and these add bonus, global bonuses to your empire. And that was really the big thing uh, that was unveiled. It doesn't seem to be an either-or situation, not like the civics, where you could only be pacifist or theocratic. You could be both. Uh, these are bonuses that accumulate. And the idea is to always give you reason to build your culture. 
um, to not have a reason for your culture to ever be diminished. Um, and this is one of the things that I really noticed with Civ Five, and it's just, is that they seem to be decoupling a lot of the either-or stuff. Uh, for example, there aren't sliders for science and gold, and that's sort of the big thing for civilization. It's always had a slider. If you're not going to invest, if you're going to invest in gold, your science is going to go down. Um, so what's the, what do they replace that with? Some sort of points-based system or something? Yeah, both both accrue on their own, uh, independently of each other. You can get gold and culture. Um, and so presumably different buildings and stuff like usual will give you a bonus to one or the other, but not necessarily uh, – there's no inherent sort of economic trade-off you have to make? Not that I could see and not that I saw and not that anybody mentioned. Uh, hmm. A culture is, I'm pretty sure, tied to structures pretty much as it is now. And I'm assuming that some of the social policies will increase culture – um, and there are still great people. So great people, I'm assuming, will have a role to play there as well. And gold will come from uh, taxation of your cities. Right. Do you, th- so, do you think ahead. that that increases or decreases the complexity? I'm trying to think about it now. It seems like it's actually removing some decision points. Yeah, I would think it decreases the complexity of the game quite significantly. Um, uh, it's moving towards a much simpler model where you don't have to you know, make that that trade-off. Now, I'm assuming there are other trade-offs to the game. There's still a tech tree. You still have to choose one technology over and over another. Um, but, yeah, the idea of, you know, how quickly can I accrue my science or how much of a deficit, how long can I run a deficit of gold um, is actually quite an important decision in civilization, uh, as it's traditionally been known. Um and especially in Civ so IV, they introduced the whole culture slider. Do you want to push the cultural boundaries out more? Do you want to go for that, especially at the end, where you might want to go for that culture victory because you're lagging behind in someplace else? And so increase that slider some to go for that last push. Uh, so this does take out some of that, the removal of sliders. It uh, takes out some of that complexity and that decision point. Um, as I noted in my preview at GameShark is one of the things I really don't have a grip on for civilization yet. This is after, you know, talking to John uh, Schaefer and seeing two demos of it. Well, one and a half demos. I was called out of the E3 demo, so I could have my 15 minutes with John. Um, is how the systems all fit together, and I'm really not quite certain of that yet. I don't know how diplomacy fits with all the economic stuff. <laughs> do you, do or, you think they're certain of that yet? <laughs> I'm, I'm quite. I don't. Know, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're certain. I mean, they seem to speak with a lot of authority on this, and you know, uh, it's a company that I've come to trust in many ways. But it's also the company that brought us espionage uh, in Beyond the Sword, a system that was you know tacked on at the last minute, didn't seem to fit anywhere, uh, it seemed to be there just for the sake of being there. Um, so I'm really not concerned, but concerned is the wrong word. I'm, I'm curious how all of this stuff really fits together. For example, cultural boundaries for cities only increase one hex at a time. It's not like this expanding radius. And your city chooses which hex wait, wait, to one, grab. One individual hex at a time, not like one hex of radius at a time? Yeah, one hex at a time. Mm. One hex of space. And it moves towards uh, resources it thinks it needs. If it's a resource a little ways away, it will move towards that resource. So it's like a conscious amoeba type thing. <laughs> More or less. I mean, I have, I have to see it in action to really get a feel for it. So you don't have this big sprawling X um, swallowing up everything, uh, so, which is quite different from uh, the cultural Yeah, that's a huge difference. In Civ 3 and 4. Um, well, Civ you can, 3 and 4 and almost every other game I can think of. Yeah, um, uh, Sins of the Solar Empire, same thing. You have this, hey, this Galsiv, cultural, right? cultural radius, Galsiv, a cultural radius that expands and expands. This is not like that. This uh, moves towards specific resources, specific squares, hexes, tiles. Let's just call them tiles. I, mean, I, I can come up with some interesting ideas, like why that's cool. I mean, that's sort of like going to, you know, going to Southeast Asia, Asia, and say setting up Radio Free America, right? I mean, it's like it's like targeted cultural expansion. Sure. I mean, because you, you can even you can buy hexes. Um, if your cultural boundaries are aren't expanding fast enough, you can buy a hex, and therefore just just grab it, pay a. Pay, pay some gold, and that hex and that resource now belongs to you, which makes land grabs an interesting strategy. Expensive, but you could, you know, drop a settler close to the enemy near resources and just buy up the hexes you need, so you're using that stuff right now, instead of waiting for the cultural boundaries to expand. Um, we were sure this is a bit of a time. This is a bit of a money sink. 
You can't go just go around snapping that stuff up because right. this was one of uh, Tom's concerns when I spoke to him is, you know, how do you avoid the issue of gold being this super resource? I mean, if it's independent from science and you can just buy up tiles, uh, you don't want to have gold become so important uh, that it throws everything else out of whack. Um, in his blog on Fidget, he was concerned about fidget, but feature creep. Is there, are there just too many features in the new civilization? And my concern isn't that. I don't think it has really that many more features than Civilization 4 because it is taking some stuff out. My concern is that it is, in fact, you know, changing the system so much, I'm going to have to relearn this whole damn game again. And, which is cool, because I haven't had to relearn Civ really since Civ 4. Uh, this is big, this is as big a break from Civ 4 as Civ 4 was from 3. I don't think we can underestimate just how yeah. radical a change this is. Seems like it. So I guess, I mean, one thing I'm really curious about is the combat then, because to me it just sounds like they're sort of simplifying in some areas, but one of the ways this game has appealed to me is it's got a bit more of a beer and pretzels war game vibe to it. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how's that coming together? The combat looks great. I mean, the motivating decision here, um, uh, Dennis Shirk, the producer who was giving the presentation, his motivate, the motivating design thing here is to take warfare away from the cities. To not make everything about capturing the next city and moving on. It's about using the map and using the terrain. So you actually have battles, uh, where hills matter and forests matter and it's not just a stack of doom. Right. Um, which is great. Um, they showed us, and you know, m- many times two units will fight and both units will survive. That happens very rarely in civilization now unless, a un- unless cavalry is a flanking maneuver, uh, it's not go, or an evasion maneuver, it's not going to uh, one unit's always going to die. That's just how civilization has always been. One wins, one dies. Um, now that's not there. You, both units can come out damaged. So you'll have weak units. Uh, you'll need to preserve, and this keeps, and there are fronts, and ranged units are important. And it's, the war game stuff is actually quite interesting. It's simple. Once again, just like in Civ 4, all the bonuses are laid out quite nicely. Um, and at, I was, I'm not going to say surprised at how elegant it looks. It really is you know, a Panzer General type thing, which is Schaefer's big inspiration, uh, which I think is kind of neat. That, you know, he takes the Panzer General mechanic where you have to have you know, a bunch of units around the front and use their strengths and their weaknesses properly to get to your objective. Um, it works quite elegantly and it's, uh, cities have hit points and not defending units and it's such a wonderful Elegant, simple war game thing. And, you know, it's kind of too much to hope, wow, this is the beer and pretzel war game that makes war games viable again, because we all know that ain't never gonna happen. Uh, but hey, it restores, hey. you know. I don't know hey. that. I do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not living in the past. I know that, you know, real war games are pretty much uh, dead, and so are Panzer Generals. But, this is, uh, a really nice war game that does introduce ideas like, Elevation and flanking and crossing rivers and how do you line up your troops properly so that you can actually get your infant, your uh, cavalry back where it's supposed to be to do that strike and, um, promotions for units are kind of unit specific. Uh, your the idea is you won't have, uh, cavalry and infantry always having the same types of promotions, uh, which is nice. So there's, I'm really looking forward to trying the combat stuff. I mean, I really wanted to hands-on. I mean, I sat there through the 15 minutes of the 30-minute presentation, and I just wanted to you know, grab the mouse. I just wanted to go behind the curtain and find who was doing it and just shake him and <laughs> take it because uh, there's a lot here I want to see and want to play with. It's, so you're, you're saying this is the game that's going to make you a filthy pirate? No, this is the game that's going to make me murder somebody and not see my wife for three months probably uh it's i'm i'm a i'm a civ addict i mean i, what's I know the, what's the scheduled release on this some end of august uh, september, september 21 september, september 21. 21 okay the and the beginning of fall uh, which is perfect no, nobody and, ever releases games like leading up to christmas so yeah it's really a surprise that they're doing it in the holiday just before the holiday season um September 21, it'll probably be done before that. It looks very polished, and it's a, it's a nice-looking game. Um, I do have some concerns. Like I said, not concerns. I, I'm not going to give it my stamp of approval. Uh, today, Bill Abner sent an email around saying, you know, 
we have to do a list of games we, we promise will be good. And, you know, promises? <laughs> I don't make many promises. I did not make that promise about Civilization V because I do want to see how all the systems fit together. And I'm, until I see that, all I see are a lot of really neat and cool features, which I'm very excited about. And I have all the greatest confidence in the world in John Schaefer and Sid Meier and the Firaxis team. But I'm not going to make any promises until I see how all the, how diplomacy fits with, uh, the city states. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is the potential for a spore problem here, right? I mean, it's like there's a bunch of stuff that we've all seen pieces of. Like we've seen some combat. We've seen, we've heard conversations about the diplomacy side. We've seen some of the economic stuff that they're working on. We've seen the cultural stuff. But until we see how all those things actually play together, this could be you know, an unmitigated disaster or you know strategy game of the decade. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to go for either of those. I think Civ Four is a strategy game of the decade, and no matter how good Civ Five is, it's got a long way to go uh, to beat Civ Four. And it's not going to be an unmitigated disaster. But I didn't think Spore was either. I, but it is going to be a it, it does have the potential for being a game that's going to surprise a lot of people and not all of them in a positive way. There are going to be some Civ fans who are not going to like where this game is going, um, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay to shake up a series in some pretty radical ways, and uh, Schaefer and Forex are doing that. Um, it's still Civ. I mean, you still found a city. You still research technology. Uh, you still hate Montezuma because everybody hates Montezuma. All that is still there, and it's still a very important part of the game. But uh, there are going to be some people, and you can read some of it in the forums now, people are saying, wow, am I sure I'm going to like this? Um, I've already pre-ordered the deluxe edition, because I'm an idiot. Um, here, I was railing, <laughs> here, here I was railing against it. Why am I have to pay for the Babylonians? But I paid for the Babylonians, because I'm a sucker. You can send your angry emails to me, because, you know, I've betrayed my principles, but... It's a games journalist. I do that all the time anyway. So speaking of betraying principles, um, let's talk <laughs> about Creative Assembly and Shogun 2. Shogun 2 I saw with Bill Abner. Uh, they were running very, very late. Um, so the gentleman who was presenting it from Creative Assembly was, you know, he was still you know, had like a half-eaten lunch in front of him. And he was kind <laughs> of like trying to get a bite of a burger and a fry whenever he could. Uh, he was, he was running late and he showed us, you know, it's, it was an interesting presentation in that it was clearly designed to make us feel excited that they're going back to Shogun. Going back, which I know is your favorite of the Total War games, Rob, right? Oh, well, no, Medieval's still my favorite, but, uh, Shogun, that's the one that kindled the fire. Yeah, Shogun kindled a lot of our fires. Um, and it's, they even showed, you know, it's just 10 years later, and here's a screenshot from Shogun. Look how crappy it is. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, and I think it's not great to say, oh, didn't we used to have crappy graphics? But we'd tell this great stuff going on, because Shogun was so huge. And this was a game that just blew everyone away when it came out. And they're kind of hoping that's going to happen again uh, with Shogun 2. But all they really talked about was how big and beautiful the game is, um, which is interesting. Uh, the battle was outstanding. The faces look good. The horses look amazing. There are only 30 types of units, because it is Japan, but 80 different types of trees. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Uh, that's because they want to model the Japanese landscape. Uh, so there are all the different types of trees and... The grass looks great, and the horses look good. The horses are independent from the rider, so you're going to be riderless horses. Excellent. Um, which is, yeah, all really cool. The armor looks amazing. Uh, fire arrows scare the hell out of you. Uh, there are different types of uh, fortresses. They want to have, because they recognize sieges have become kind of boring uh, in their series. They want to have... Um, Different castles that have actually kill zone type ideas, where you you if you get into a castle, you might get so far and get annihilated because a kill zone has been set up. Um, there are coastal castles and plains castles and mountain castles, and each of these will play out very differently. Uh, they promise because sieges have, you know, since Rome, have really not been very interesting. Uh, even in Rome, they were kind uh, of built. I, I don't know about that. Like I like. Well, we, we, but we, we can agree they sucked an empire, right? Well, yes, because in empire yes. they go back to basically the sieges they had in the very first game, where it's like a stockade, some troops inside it. But right. no, it's terrible. It's totally um, 
you know, historical. But Medieval 2, um, I actually thought the seizures were pretty good, um, if you had the patience for them. Because they did have that great, like, it was like peeling back the layers of defenses in a castle and just feeding troops into the uh, maelstrom. If it goes back to something more like that, you know, with the kill zones and trying to clear, you know, the next, like, man trap, that could be right. really great. But, but Medieval 2 didn't really have, I mean, how often did, you actually have, did the AI actually retreat to, you know, the upper keep? Generally, it would stand there on the walls and wait for you to come. Um, I very rarely had the issue with the AI doing something smart, like retreating to a stronger did, position. Did you get to see the naval stuff at all? They showed, um, they showed the, they showed the ships. Uh, they yeah, showed we, the ships. I, I saw the screenshots. They looked yeah, pretty. That's pretty, that's, pretty much what it, that's pretty much what it was. They showed uh, a live. It was it was in engine. It was there. They showed not in action, but they showed the coastal vessels and they showed um, land. They showed troops on the coast. And they said, "Well, the ambition is to find a way to have the troops on land interact with the ships somehow. That's the ambition. They've made no promises. They can actually do it." Um, but that's something they want to try to do, and I think that'll be cool. That'll be interesting. But yeah, they're going to be. It's it's a lot like melee combat. Their ships. It's you know a bunch of samurai. No fighting. view of the uh, strategy map. Zero. That's what I was going to get to. Um, because once all, all, all we saw was you know this in-engine stuff from the battle stuff. Uh, right. We saw that we saw the ships not moving or doing anything. Uh, the coastal battles could be interesting because you have to actually navigate the coast. And, and the ships seem much simpler. I mean, they're much simpler. You, they don't. You don't have to worry about the oars, wind. Right? You don't have to all oars. You don't have to worry about the wind. It's just point and click. Very traditional, uh, virtually melee combat uh, oared vessels. You know, your your vessels climb into bang into each other. The samurai start killing each other, and eventually you get to sail sailing ships. But that's much further down with the tech tree. They showed nothing of the campaign map, not even a screenshot of the campaign map. That's, they that's had. sort of disappointing just because part of what's so cool about what I've seen so far in Shogun is the art style that's not in-game. Yep. Right? I mean, yeah. the, the in-game maps, the in-game stuff, I mean, unless you're zoomed way in on an individual unit, it's not all that distinguishable than any other Total War game. I mean, you're looking at you know big units with little floating things over their heads, moving around on a big battlefield, right? Yeah. But the, the the little unit figures that they've shown that sort of look like that classic Japanese art style. I'm sort of hoping they do something cool with all the other stuff in the interface. And you know, the they, they made a they made a really big deal about how they sent their artists to learn uh, traditional Japanese woodcut art artistry, so that they could create original uh, design. Uh, that mimics the Sengoku era uh, Japanese art, and, we and they showed exam- they showed they showed examples of it uh, of that art. You know, it all looked very pretty and stylish, and they apparently spent a year learning that. Okay, and that'd be like <laughs> a year. They I hope it has spending. something to do with the game. Then <laughs> I kind of hope that art works its way in, but you know, so you can draw me a great I, I, authentic, I authentic, you know, 16th century. Uh, or 17th century Japanese woodcut, awesome. I hope, How does the I hope it's not just. I hope it's not just loading screens because that would be yeah. a waste. Yes, I want to see some of that in the map. I want to see some of that um, in the menus and margins. I also want to see an AI. Well, Sun Tzu's the one. Any AI? An AI that you know. Bill Abner asked about the AI, and they said you know they have this this what they call this a hygiene list of things that the game cannot ship without, and apparently. And aggressive AI is one of them. So, yeah, we'll see how well that works. Uh, Bill kind of rolled his eyes because yeah. that's who Bill is. Right. And then he said, hey, well, no, it's also Johnson an... lately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's, it's an issue. And they, they know it's an issue, but it's something, you know, they have they really haven't fixed uh, to many people. I mean, I liked Empire. I was you know, a heretic for liking Empire because it does spectacle well. And this is amazing spectacle. Um, but I'm kind of past the point where I'm willing to give them credit anymore for just the spectacle. Though that's, they can have up to 56,000 units now uh, on the map, which is huge. But, you know, uh, show me the economy. Show me the diplomacy. Um, show me how all of this stuff fits together. And right now I'm really in a wait and see uh, with Shogun 2. And that's still quite a ways off. But it wasn't nearly as amazing a presentation as the naval combat they showed two years ago at E3 for Empire. Where it's like, well, this is something really, really new. Um, showing 
me, you know, samurais clashing into Ashigaru uh, spearmen. You know, I've kind of seen that before. Um, show me something really new and original, and maybe I'll get excited again. But the strategy surprise for me was End of Nations uh, from Tryon, which is an MMORTS, and I thought this could never be done, and I think they may have actually done it for God's sakes. Um, really? Well, tell me more, because I don't know much more about this than, I don't know, stuff I read three months ago that sort of said, hey, this game's coming out. Yeah, uh, Petroglyph, who did uh, yeah. the Empire at War and Universe at War uh, games as a developer. I'm, which I'm sketchy on both of those. I don't think they're the best. Yeah, exactly. Ever. I mean, those aren't those are not great games. <laughs> Well, but they're not, they're not like abysmally unplayable messes either. Ab- absolutely not. Uh, uh, they're both, they're both average games. Uh, right. They show, That's they totally show polish, fair. they show talent. Um, Universe at War had some, had more problems than Empire at War, but they both, you know, show something. Um, M- End of Nations, I think, kind of cracks the MMORTS nut by saying, well, let's treat this like an MMORPG. Um, let's have dungeons where you need guilds. Right. Uh, to fight. It's like a, it's like if you took World of Conflict. You have the World of, World of Conflict, great RTS from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, this campaign that you follow and there are different classes of units. Right. And what if that was an MMO? What if the, um, you were fighting the Russian invasion and the Russian invasion was controlled by an AI and you and all of your friends have to fight the AI units? And now those are the dungeons. And that's what Order of War really is. That's what the MMO part is. Huh, you, okay. and your, cool. you and your friends are you and your friends are, are different classes. You know, tank, artillery, infantry, whatever. Um, the menu is divided. You have uh, RPG stuff on one side of the menu and RTS stuff on the other side of the menu. It's really quite a complicated menu. Though if you're used to WoW, I'm pretty sure you can handle it. Um, as long as they make the interface scriptable, it's all good. Right. And there are maps you play with your guilds, and some of them are really huge, elaborate dungeons. Some of them are small, and you can solo, but a lot of the larger tactical maps have, you know, forts you have to capture. So now, is there is there really a persistent world here, or is it there, is it there? There kind of is, and I didn't get a lot of information on this. I mean, there, there really... is a me- go ahead. There, there, there is a, a meta world they're calling it, and this is where the PvP stuff breaks down. I'm not quite sure who the two P's are. That's uh, starting to sound a lot like Planet Side to me. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, everybody is playing, you know, one, everyone's, everyone's fighting against the AI opponent, Order of War, but there's this meta world type thing where what you do uh, interacts with this meta world. It's a, it's a world map, and you can see different sides taking over different parts. Um, how it all fits together, I did not get a good idea. Um, it's encouraging uh, c- c- collectibles, where as you level up and you unlock new units and new powers, and you can collect new units, and they can create sets, and these sets then have new bonuses attached to them, which I think is a very interesting way of doing it, uh, to keep it, continue to keep playing. Um, and I, I'm not... So I'm it's not, basically I'm like getting say, armor in WoW or something, right? Yeah, it's like getting, yeah, they'll get the whole set of tanks, a, a scorpion tanks or whatever, footnote, there are no scorpion tanks, it's just a name, name I just pulled on my ass. Uh, <laughs> You get all the set of scorpion tanks, and they all work together as a unit, and they work better than if you only have, say, seven of the ten, as opposed to the ten. Right. So if the three of us are, like, playing together and we're doing one of these dungeons together, yep. like, I mean, you know, how does it all fit together? What what are each of us doing uh, to well, cooperate? It sounds like, like you'd be heavy artillery and I might be infantry. Is that okay. right? Yeah, that, it's like that. Um it's everyone has a role to play. Um, they it was kind of really once again it was really hard to get a feel for some of these demos. And I love I love the people at Tryon. I love the people at Petroglyph. And I love all of these people doing very hard job trying to get all the press to see these games. But when you turn on the invulnerability mode, it makes it very hard for me to see how dangerous anything is. <laughs> I know you're trying to show me the map and everything, but driving your invulnerable tanks through this great dungeon you've set up as a threat really doesn't convince me that things are going to go badly uh, if I don't solo this. Um, so heads up, guys. Invulnerability mode rocks, but you can't, shouldn't turn that on first thing. You know, die, reload, and then show me. Um, 
they did the same thing with Rift, actually, also in the Tryon booth, an MMO. I'm going to turn on vulnerability and kill all these bad guys. Well, great. You killed all the bad guys. <laughs> but I, I kind of want to see yeah, how's some the of the game balance going for you there, guy? <laughs> I want to see how these enemy animations work. So, but End of Nations was absolutely not on my radar. It's a game that yeah, I had neither. read very little about. Um, 2011? It's 2011. Uh, Stephanie Shop was there. She was on her podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, and so she was doing the promo for it. Very glad to see her. Joe Zemer was also at E3 with the Paradox people. It's good to see both of them. Um, and Stephanie, End of Nations, uh, please let Three Moves Ahead know, because I think there might be something there. Um, that's something I really want to pay attention to and follow up on. Uh, it could be an absolute disaster, but the MMORTS, I think, can be done. And even if End of Nations is not the one to do it, I think it is setting up a good model. Well, uh, I was going to say model is the key question here. Business model? Is this 15 bucks a month, or is this microtransactions, or is it what? That's a good question. I think it's subscription. Mm. And if it's subscription, that's going to be an issue. Mm. Uh, Mind you, Rift is also a subscription. They're MMORPG. And I think, you know, sending out a subscription fantasy MMO. And this day and age is like a suicide run. These people uh, need to like make a phone call to Turbine. I mean, seriously. They do, they do, because DDO has become much more successful since they moved free to play. Well, and Lotro's gonna th- kick everyone's Lotro's ass too. Lotro's doing it, so. and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna re-up for Lotro when it goes free. I'm, I'm re-upping. I'm, I'm joining back up. I'm, I'm sending my Hobbit back out there. You go, uh, boy. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was that was E3 for me. I, mean, I saw a few other strategy games, the Paradox booth, mostly the same stuff I saw at Stockholm, so I don't have to rehash all of that. I will say Lionheart, I think, is going to be the surprise out of that lineup. Uh, surprisingly, well, surprises are surprising. What you do you know? See, you didn't see Risk Factions? I did not see Risk Factions. Oh. Now, Julian, you know more. Tom did, and he wanted to talk about it. So you tell me about Risk Factions. Cause well, like, I mean, it's out tomorrow, so by the time you get this damn thing posted, people will be able to play it for 10 bucks. So, but they won't yeah. unless you convince them. Yeah, so the, this, well, the Risk, Risk Factions is coming out on Wednesday, the 23rd. Right. And I, I don't know much about it. I haven't, like, interviewed anybody from the developer. and I Actually, I'm not even sure I know which developer is doing it. Um which I'm I'm ashamed to say I don't I think I know it's coming through EA I don't know whether because EA has the the Hasbro license connection so anything that's a Hasbro board game goes through EA so right. you know technically Scrabble is coming through EA but I think there's other developers who actually do the real work um, and you know other studios that actually do the real work but it's um I mean it's it's a from what I've seen it's sort of a, a goofy take on what is a time honored tradition in the Risk universe which is take what is really a pretty straightforward somewhat boring elimination game um and and tweak it to make an interesting strategy game out of it and and uh there have been some fabulous derivations of risk over the years i mean risk 2210 is an amazingly great strategy game it's not just a random dice fest um and and you know for every license that they get those guys roll out another variation on risk, whether it's Risk Godstorm or Lord of the Rings Risk or Star Wars Risk. And they're actually all quite different games. And there's some real gems along the way, uh, all the way up to, to Risk Black Ops, which they released about a year and a half ago, which is sort of a retooling of the core game of Risk. It's now what if you go buy Risk for $8 on sale at Walmart, you're getting Black Ops. It's just not called that anymore, which really changes Risk and makes it an objective-based game, not an elimination game. Uh, it limits the time play down to 90 minutes pretty much consistently. Um, and it, it makes it a much more interesting strategic game. And it seems like what they're doing in Risk Factions with sort of a bit of a goofy overlay of family guy level cartoon graphics on it um mm-hmm. is is adopting a lot of that sort of objective based mechanics um so objective and this is really the big change for risk i mean the, this is not the risk that i've played that, that we grew up on i, I right. you know I, you know i you know i hate risk you hate risk but the the risk you hate is, is the is the old risk? It's basically they, they, they everybody goes around and puts a unit on the board. Then you go around and put the rest of your units on the board, and then you just try to get rid of the other guy by rolling your dice against his dice. That's it. That's that's basically all of risk. Now, what what the new risk does is it makes 
particular territories more interesting than other territories by putting cities on them, uh, you know, or strongholds. Um, it makes uh, certain, uh, you know, in any given game, there might be an airfield here that gives you certain superiority in a particular environment. There might be... Uh, this, this, is, this is all random, right? I mean, it's not the same from game to game. It's, it's not all. the same from game to game at all. And in, in from what I've seen, what they're doing to Risk Factions is they're actually introducing all sorts of different map types, right, which is something they can't do in the board game. So you're not right. just playing on the sort of uh, you know, politi- you know, depoliticized map of the world. <laughs> you know, um, is so so they. It looks like they're doing all sorts of interesting things now. Whether they've actually done the game design right underneath, I have no idea because I haven't played it. So, what concerns do you have? What, what, what could they possibly screw up? Not much, because the core game of Risk, like like if you step back to the game we played as kids, is a pretty crappy game. I mean, we all played a lot of it, and we all got in fistfights over it, but it's it's really straightforward. I mean, it's right. it's you know, it's not a strategy game on the level of chess, right? It's you can teach it to somebody in five minutes. Um, so the and only you can thing, teach, and, and you can teach them how, how to hate it in seven. Exactly. Um, so the only thing that they could have done would be, I would say, to have made the game so goofy it's not actually an, not actually in, interesting as a strategy game anymore. Right. Um, but they've got a lot of great material to go back to. I mean, like I said, while most hardcore gamers haven't played them along the way, I've kind of played them because I, I know a bunch of the designers, and so they sure. show up in my house. And there have been some real strategy gems along the way. I mean, games that you would never in a million years buy, like the Star Wars Episode One Risk, like which probably sold eight copies to nine-year-olds who never played it. Is actually a brilliant strategy game, and nobody will ever know because nobody's ever no, because they're certainly never going to believe it, right? <laughs> I first said, how can anything associated with episode one possibly be good? Yeah, it's, got, just... it's got these great like timer mechanics, and there's all sorts of stuff going on that has nothing to do with risk along the way, and and it's just a, it's just a great core strategy board game design. So there's all these things, and Risk Twenty Two Ten is just a classic strategy game in my book. I mean, it's it's an unbelievably great game, um, right. although still very fistfight <laughs> inducing. So there's lots they could look back to, and and I'm just excited to see that somebody making a version of risk that's not some crappy cell phone version right I and mean, that's the right. problem nobody's ever made a good online or even computer version of risk because they've stuck to the rules rules suck right i mean that's i mean it's only really the last little while that risk the board game has become interesting um and game developers are also only now realizing the power of board games on XBLA and on iPhone and on iPad and all these great platforms. So really it's a finally it's a mix of, you know, content and medium. I just uh, wish it wasn't on XBLA. I wish it was, I I just wish this was coming out on yeah. my iPad, which is where right. all sorts of cool strategy board game stuff is coming. Carcassonne just came out on the iPad and it's brilliant. So Yeah. It has an amazingly good AI. That's the trick. Oh, really? Yes. I can't beat the AI. Maybe you just suck at Carcassonne? I, it's possible. It's possible. But I'm playing all sorts of online games, too. It's great. Anyway, um, I'm excited for Risk Factions. I'm, you know, it's 10 bucks, so I'm sure we'll all just go buy it and play it anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to see it there. I mean, my schedule, lots of stuff I didn't get to see, even the strategy side. I didn't get to see a Calypso's uh, booth, uh, which had Patrician 4. Which I was interested in seeing. But, Wait, did uh, Ubisoft bring Ruse around? Ubisoft did not have Ruse there. No. Really? Why would they have Ruse? They showed it last year. Um, well, right, but uh, it's supposed to be coming out this fall. If the beta was out, you I know, E three was E three was strange. I mean, you had companies there showing games that would be like Risk Factions and the Telltale Adventure games, the Sam and Max and Puzzle Agent. They'd be like coming out the very next week. As why are you here? Why are you here showing me games I'm gonna be out next week? The review copies are already sent out. And you're showing this to me now. Why? Um, I guess that's not much. I think I guess that's probably better than showing me something that's not going to be until you know Christmas 2011, uh, when everything can change. Yeah. But it just felt really weird to be sitting in a Sam and Max presentation. It's like, oh, and the review copies have already been sent out. Okay. So I'm writing a, a preview for a game other people are already reviewing. Hmm. Just struck me as bizarre. Yeah. But that's E3 for you. Um, so E3 was great. I love going and seeing my colleagues and friends. Uh, that's really what it's all about. I did no partying this year. Um, I just things didn't work out as far as my party schedule was concerned, and uh, that was kind of lame. So next year I'm going to be partying my head off. Um, I hope that 
you guys can come uh, to E3 one of these years, and we can do a whole big TMA thing, which would be nice. There'll be a TMA party. Oh, people, people love to get into that. People love us. Uh, seriously, they do. Uh, but Rob, I want to talk to you about your first press event because you were tapped by Bill Abner to go to a one C thing uh, for Game Shark, an event that I was going to be going to, but since I was going to E3, Bill thought it made more sense for me to do prep for that and you to take this, uh, which I'm glad you did. Did you fly to Russia? Um, you know, I think I might have, actually. I was <laughs> at the Russian consulate, um, so I don't know if that's technically Russian soil, but there we were. You were in uh, L.A.? They really they really uh, say for the Russian consulate? San Francisco. San Francisco, yep. Yeah. The Russian consulate. Um, so what did you see? Got a whole bunch of stuff, um, and actually a surprising amount of it, like, sort of of interest to us strategy gamers. Um, saw the new Men of War games. Okay. Uh, for one thing. Uh, Men of War Assault Squad and Men of War Vietnam, uh, which I didn't know was happening, so I was pretty excited to see a Vietnam game pop up. Um, yeah, and they also had um, Theater of War Two Korea, which I'm you know I'm interested in anything you know that has to do with the Korean War. So I mean that that got my attention. Then I played the demo, and well, we'll come back to that in a second. Um, and yeah, there was another uh, King's Bounty um, expansion. Um, so yeah, that was that's what I saw there. Um, and I don't know, like Men of War, Men of War uh, was def- like Vietnam was interesting, definitely. But I have problems with controlling that game that I'm not sure I'm ever going to really resolve. Um, Did you play the original Men of War? I did, and I. I had, you know, I didn't get through it. I, I had trouble with controlling that as well. Um, it's it's a real-time tactical game where basically you've got to manage inventory. I mean, I, here's the best way I can think of to describe it. Um, think of Jack and Alliance 2 happening in real time. <laughs> um, and that is really how it feels to me, uh, because I've got to make like these quick tactical decisions and you know micromanage my troops, and it's all happening in real time, and guys are getting blown away all around me. And so usually what ends up happening is, um, and this was the case with both the demos I played, um, <laughs> attrition basically whittled my forces down to whatever was the size I could manage, and then we started you know advancing. Um, but the first thing I try to do is like, okay, boys, you know, nobody dies. Ten seconds later, there's like 15 bodies littered in the roadway, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you three, let's you go. Got it. Um, so yeah, so, um, yeah, Men of War Vietnam, uh, I have a preview of that coming up for Game Shark. Um, the theater of War 2 in Vietnam, you mean? No, it's Korean War, right? Men of War Vietnam, right? Okay, never mind. Yeah. Uh, but going, but going back to that for one second, um, I don't know. The, the one thing that kind of left me worried is that um, in, in the presentation beforehand, they, they emphasized that, like, you know, as you all know, Vietnam's the rock and roll war. Um, and, you know, insert shot of, like, helicopter flying over jungle. And, you know, honestly, no joke. I was a little concerned. I'm a little concerned about the game sort of you know, trafficking and a lot of, like, Vietnam cliches and trying to create, like, a rock and roll vibe to the war, um, which I think would be disastrous unless you actually have the rights to Vietnam-era music. This might seem like a small, you know, nit to pick, but I don't think so. Like, there's nothing yeah. worse than, like, generic, um, unlicensed rock and roll tracks um, in my strategy game. Uh, so keep that out. But, um... And then- I, think, I think that's a legitimate point. I mean, it's not that... Vietnam is a rock and roll uh, war. It's that there's so much classic rock about the Vietnam War and about right. the struggle. Um, there, you had the really great music uh, in the late 60s and early 70s that just happened to overlap uh, the Vietnam War. Um, and to just have, you know, generic, this is sort of, kind of, like Janis Joplin, uh, it's not really the same thing. Right. And, and a big part of it is, too, it's, the, it's not only is it the rock and roll war, but it's a war where you've got troops fighting in the field, listening to songs about how much Vietnam sucks, basically. Right. And that's yep. that's the interesting tension there. So, I mean, that was that was something that caught my attention, and I hope they 
hope they handle that well. But I'm really um, excited. They didn't show this at the demo. I'm really excited to see um, the communist campaign because I don't know whether there's going to be more than one, but um, definitely one of the campaigns is from the point of view of um, Soviet military advisors to North Vietnam, um, which I think has the potential to be... That's interesting. Yeah, like... Because, you know, you're, you're not going to be with the NVA. You're not going to be Viet Cong. You're going to be there as this, you know, foreign agent basically trying to assist, um, you know, these, these erstwhile allies with a war of national liberation. And I think if they, if they get into some of the tension that created, um, that could be, that could be a really interesting story to tell. Um, and it's certainly one that hasn't been told in the video game and is one that, um, not a lot do you of people play with. Do you get the sense they're interested in telling a story? I did. Um, if you if you look at the two Men of War games that were there that night, Men of War Assault Squad's kind of like their multiplayer cooperative. Um, you know, you go into the dungeon, kill the AI. It's comp stompy game. Men of War Vietnam, I definitely got the sense they had some narrative objectives with it. Okay. And the Theater of War Two game, which you saw. Now, did you play the first Theater of War Two? No, I did not. I, I could never get it to run right. It ran much too slowly on my computer for some reason. It wasn't optimized for the dual core or something. Now that I have a supercomputer, um, I may have to uh, <laughs> try it again and see if it works. Yeah, I... I um... It's a real-time combat mission, in effect. Yeah, exactly. And it, I don't know if the uh, original Theater of War 2 had this, but it also has a, um, I don't know, pseudo-strategic layer. Um on top of it, where you you pick a territory to do battle in, and then you select your forces for the upcoming battle, and then you go to the tactical map and battle it out. And the tactical map is huge and sprawling. Right. Um, I don't know. The whole thing reminded me a lot of Octung Panzer. Um, oh, that's a good thing, though. Well, <laughs> no, you have to do it right. Exactly. And the problem I ran into, I mean, you know. This was not the right circumstance to see this game because I had, you know, all of like 10 minutes with the demo, um, and it was really loud in there. And I get the sense there were a lot of controls that I was having trouble coming to grips with. But after 10 minutes with the demo, I still really had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, and a lot of it just, a lot of it for me was, uh, just pushing troops around kind of a big empty map. Hmm. Um, you know, where, like, I knew where the enemy was, but just a ridiculous, you know, length of time from, you know, uh, the scenario beginning to the first shots being exchanged. Um, and again, it was, yeah, real-time combat missions probably the perfect way to describe that. And I think you run into the same problems as Men of War does being sort of a real-time jagged alliance. Combat mission is turn-based for a reason. Um, and here I just, I felt very rushed and like I wasn't able to use my forces to their full advantage, but that could have been unfamiliarity with the controls. But I mean, that said, um, you know, I really, I really find the Korean war a fascinating conflict and I would be thrilled if that finally got, you know, a halfway decent war game, uh, covering it, uh, because there's just not enough, there are not enough games to cover it. I think cool. that's true. Yeah, it's certainly a setting that would make for some interesting uh, combat. It's an interesting interesting terrain. You have a lot of weather stuff going on there. and I'm looking forward to it because I have to reinstall Theater of War 2 and see if it works on my machine. Because I remember liking the first one quite a bit, the first Theater of War, which also had issues with dual core, but it had a way to adjust those settings. Um, hopefully the i7 will... So I love my new machine. I'm gonna keep bragging about my new machine. I love it. I love having a machine. That's so good. The Sims 3 moves so smooth. Uh, I love it. <laughs> what? Sims 3 is a resource hog. Um, so, first press event. You want to do another one? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it was definitely a learning experience, and I think, you know, it was one of those things where right out of the door, I was thinking, oh, you know, I should have, I should have had a better system when I was going through these games. I should have just grabbed one of the PR guys and like held him at gunpoint and forced him to explain things to me. Um, yeah, but no, no guarantee, no guarantee that works unless the PR people are really good. Um, but you know, I've been quite fortunate to have pretty much pretty much good PR people. Um, 
in press events like that, especially in strategy game press events, because it does take actually some skill to sell that um, sort of thing. But I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, the vodka was good. Well, <laughs> okay, okay, one C. Vodka is not to be served at room temperature. Ooh, oh, okay. God. Oh, like God. Russian embassy? Yeah, it was room temperature vodka uh, at the Russian embassy. Um, and it was all mixers. Um, so, one C, you can't, you can't do that. You, you, you chill vodka. It's gotta be, the bottle's gotta be, it's got to hurt to hold the bottle. Otherwise, yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like, it's gotta be well below the freezer temperature to yep. really be good. Yep. Otherwise, vodka turns into a rather disgusting drink. Um, but the cupcakes wow. were fantastic. So no caviar. Uh, there was a little caviar, some blinis. There you go. There you go. <laughs> See, ladies and gentlemen, this is why we go to press events for the drinks and the food. I tell you, there were definitely some. Uh, uh, there are definitely some other writers there that I think were primarily there for the drinks and the food. Uh, the, yeah, the, well, welcome to going to press events. Is yeah. the, <laughs> the shuttle ride back to the sorry. hotel. I, was I don't really mean to diss my fellow writers, but there's a lot of that. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of people in this business who are in this for the parties. Uh, he says, after saying, I want to go to a party next year at E3. Uh, and I've certainly had my share of embarrassing moments, uh, but we won't get into that. Uh, so, uh, any final words or questions or concerns? Crickets, crickets. You love your crickets. Joel. I know. It, it's it's like a trademark now. It's almost like Tom. Remember back when Tom used to be on the show and, and he'd he would think about the coffee? And we'd laugh. Well, no, no actually, laugh. we'd never laugh. That's that was part of that's why it was funny. Hopefully, uh, we can get uh, Tom or Bruce here next week when we talk about uh, tactical RPG strategy games, Disciples 3 is on its way, and we have been sent preview builds. So we'll talk about the Disciple series, Heroes of Might and Magic, and other games uh, in the, of these of this ilk. Uh, what makes a good tactical strategy RPG? Why are so many of them uh, in the fantasy uh, genre? And is there a way uh, to make them better? And do we actually like Disciples 3 or not? Uh, Julian, Rob, always a pleasure. Say goodnight. Good night. Good night.